1: But if you want early access to next week's episode and ad free listening, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode.
2: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV, Sonoro, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised.
3: Previously on The Estate.
2: Did you ever have hope that you were not going to get convicted?
4: Well, you always have hope. Always have hope. And
5: all the time they're beating
2: him up, they said they thought he was Calvin Jones.
5: I'm upset with you calling me for something that happened over 20 years ago. You're right, I am upset, because it's not none of your business. If you can't read, then you don't need to know nothing.
4: Well, I thought I had died and went to hell. That's how I felt.
3: Summer, 2009. After three years of law school in New York City... I found myself back in Stockton under my parents' roof, studying for the California bar exam. To be clear, this was not a happy homecoming. Being home meant being around my dad, who, as you've probably figured out by now, was not my favorite person. And the bar exam added a whole new layer of tension. I remember a lot of bad arguments with dad that summer, but the worst one happened over breakfast. It was a Saturday, and we were at the kitchen table, the same one where Dad first told me the story about Calvin and the murder trial. But that morning, we were talking about a different legal subject, trusts and estates. At the time, I was studying property law for the bar exam, and somehow our talk turned from the test to my parents' own estate planning, or lack thereof. As I mentioned before, my dad made a lot of irresponsible decisions with money. The wood-burning stoves, the bad land deal, and borrowing against my mom's retirement fund, to name a few. The conversation became heated. I told him he was a bad father, and he told me that I was a bad son, a bitter and ungrateful person. My mother tried to make peace between us, but neither of us could let it go. My dad and I were locked in, like pit bulls going for each other's throats. Finally, my dad lost his temper. If I had anything, even a billion dollars, I wouldn't leave you shit. Not one cent. And at this point, my mother lost it. Keep in mind, my mom was a tough lady. She battled breast cancer while single handedly supporting her kids and husband on a county job. She didn't break easy, but my dad's words devastated her. If we didn't do this for them, for our children, then what was it for? She shouted at my dad, tears streaming down her face. What was any of this for? From Sonoro in Partnership with Tinderfoot TV, I'm Alex Estrada, and this is The Estate. Calvin Jones spent 30 years behind bars, but it wasn't for shooting Tony. It was for conspiracy to kill, which is an odd crime when you think about it. It's telling your lover to poison her husband so you can be together or putting a hit out on a rival mob boss. There are things that feel more like true crime fantasy than reality. So, it was the agreement to commit the murder that landed Calvin in prison. Without a link to the gunman, there's no way Calvin gets convicted. That link was Ulysses Dat Hall. (laughs)
2: It's hard to characterize a human without spending significant time with them. But this is what we do know. Ulysses was born and raised in Stockton, California. He had 10 siblings. For many years, his life was plagued by an addiction to heroin. He spent years in and out of prison for drug-related offenses. In 1973, he was up for parole. This is when Calvin and Ulysses' lives intersect. Calvin was known in Stockton's Black community as a businessman. By this point, he and Rosie had their liquor stores and construction business. Eventually, Calvin would give Ulysses a job, working for the construction business as a general laborer, cleaning up sites. According to different witnesses who testified at trial, Tony fired Ulysses just a couple of weeks into the job for goofing off. Looking at the early police reports, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly why police latched onto Ulysses Hall as the suspected shooter. But the prosecution used two pieces of information. One, Calvin got Ulysses out of jail early and set him up with a job. The prosecution argued Calvin was priming Ulysses to eventually do the deed of killing Tony. Two, Tony fired Ulysses. Therefore, Ulysses had a motive to kill Tony. But by far the most damning evidence came in the form of Lee June Williams, a woman in her mid-50s who lived two houses down from the crime scene. Almost 10 years after the murder, she testified that she saw Ulysses leaving the crime scene and that Ulysses was the one driving Tony's car, the same car Tony was shot in. Here, Is a reenactment of Lee June Williams' testimony.
0: As I approached the driveway, the parking area there, a car was coming out of the driveway.
1: Now, what did you do when you saw this car coming? I stopped. And did you notice who the driver was? Yes. What race was the driver? He was black. And when you say black, uh, you're referring to someone with black skin, like Mr. Jones? Yes. And could you identify that person today? Yes. And who is that?
2: Ulysses Dat Hall. The story the prosecution told was that after Ulysses shot Tony in the back of his own car, he then drove the car a half mile to Fremont Square, and left Tony in the back seat bleeding out. The more people we talked to in our investigation, the more obvious it became that Ulysses holds the key to understanding all of this. But it seemed like finding him would be impossible. People in Stockton described him as a recluse, a man off the grid, trying to leave his past behind him
5: he's a legitimate person that people are afraid of a physical specimen of muscles and just completely in shape even at his age that he is is amazing he's he's a part of the story Uh, i doubt that he'll get involved
2: he refuses to talk to anybody he talks to Calvin, but he won't talk to anybody on the record
4: Ulysses wasn't He's He scared to get involved because he's scared to go and lock him up again.
2: And if you talk to anybody in this town that was around during that period of time, they're all gonna say, Rosie got a pass, Calvin did the time, and Dad Hall walked away. I tracked down a couple of different addresses for Ulysses, certain that none of them would check out, but we had to try, even if it was a shot in the dark.
3: So, on our last day in Stockton, we get in the car and drive to the first address for an apartment complex. It's not far from the house where I grew up on Rose Street.
2: Okay, looks like a housing complex.
3: Nobody answers the door. We give it a few more knocks and wait.
2: I'll give it another knock.
3: After more empty minutes pass, we decide it's time to leave.
2: Okay, let's go.
3: But just as we're heading down the stairs, we see an older black gentleman checking his mail. He's standing right there by the entrance.
2: Hello, sir. Hello. Excuse me, sir. I have a I have a question for you.
5: Yes.
2: We're trying to find a Mr. Hall, a Ulysses Hall.
5: What, what do you want to speak to him about? I'm Ulysses. You are.
3: I am now standing in front of the man that might hold the key to the truth of what really happened that night. The man who could finally give me the answers I had spent the entire trip looking for. Did he conspire with Calvin? Did my dad know? Was he in the parking lot that night at Joe Michael's? Did he pull the trigger? All of these thoughts were racing through my mind. I don't even know where to begin, so I do the only thing I could think of. I introduce myself. I'm Alex Estrada. Um, you knew my dad, Rosie. Okay. Would you, um, we're doing a pro- uh, project about my dad, and I was wondering if you had a few minutes to talk? Not right now. We don't. don't. Okay.
2: Okay. Well, Ulysses, the reason why you know we're we're looking into it is because of you know the case back in nineteen seventy four. Right. Right. Yeah. right. Okay. yeah. And we really Calvin has maintained his innocence for thirty years. Okay. And I'm investigating, looking to see if this is a wrongful conviction. I just
5: don't want to have anything. To, anything to do with that at all. Please stay away from me. I told him to stay away from me.
2: Please. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
5: uh, I don't understand. I don't understand.
2: What because because if we look into this case, a lot of people say Ulysses did this. No Ulysses. no 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 no, no. I, I don't, I'm through with that. Okay. I'm
5: through with it. Please don't come don't come around me anymore.
2: I, we understand. Please we respect don't that. Do that. Even I want. I just want to clarify. Around, Even. Uh, i one thing.
5: Mm-hmm. Please don't come around me anymore.
3: And with that, we're stonewalled. Once again, we make our way back to the car, both a little shell-shocked. Angelina and I just sit in silence, still processing what just happened.
2: Okay, talk to me, Alex.
3: <laughs> Thank you for being there for that. <laughs> you know, the, the sense that I get talking to I think everybody's lying <laughs> at this point. I think between him and Clyde and Calvin, like nobody's, <laughs> nobody's being straight a hundred percent. For reasons. I just
2: felt so bad. Yeah, of
3: course. I felt, I felt bad too. I wish if like, if, if there had been a way to sort of sit down and explain it, it just felt like such a weird encounter. Um, Cause you know, I like, it was just, you know, it was, it was hard. Later that night, I kept going back to that scene in my mind, playing it over and over again, trying to figure out why I felt so terrible about the whole thing. What really struck me was just how small Ulysses looked. Before actually meeting him, I had imagined this big, bulky man who at close range pulled the trigger on Tony. But once we were face to face, Ulysses looked frail and afraid of me. And looking back on it, I could understand why. For years, Ulysses was targeted by police because they believed he was Tony Virgilio's killer. And shortly after Calvin and Rosie were arrested, he was charged as part of the conspiracy. But Ulysses maintained his innocence. And after years of being pursued by police, his case finally went before a judge. The judge read Lee Jun Williams' testimony and threw the charges out, concluding that the prosecution's case against Ulysses was bogus. So here is a man that has spent his entire life being pursued by rumors and hearsay. And here we were again, knocking on his door, tying him to a murder case, having nothing but rumors to go on. No wonder he looked afraid.
2: What's crazy about the whole thing with Ulysses is just how critical he is to Calvin's case. If you remember, we told you at the beginning of this episode that Calvin doesn't get convicted without Ulysses being the gunman. Because this whole case is conspiracy to kill. There has to be a co-conspirator. And by looking at the court transcripts, it's obvious that Yule Blancett convicted Calvin by convincing the jury that Calvin's co-conspirator was Ulysses. In closing arguments, Blancett describes the night of the murder. He goes back to Tony's dying declaration, where he says a black man shot him.
1: That black man was waiting for Mr. Virgilio. Waiting for Mr. Virgilio to show up so that he could kill him. He has Mr. Vigilio get into the back seat and proceeded to shoot him six times.
2: At first, Blancet is careful to not say who the black man is. But as he continues to tell the story, he brings up Lee June Williams' testimony. Remember, she's the neighbor who lived a couple of houses down from Joe Michael's office, the suspected crime scene.
1: We also know from Miss Lee Williams' testimony that she saw a car coming out of the driveway. She saw Ulysses Hall and one other person in the front seat.
2: Lee June Williams testified almost a decade after the incident occurred, but Blancett uses her testimony to identify the black man in the car as Ulysses Dat Hall.
1: Now, it would appear to me that Mr. Jones, or excuse me, uh, Mr. Hall was seen driving the vehicle.
2: Blancic goes on to say that it was Ulysses who shot Tony six times, drove Tony's car out of the parking lot, and then hit him in the face with his gun.
1: It would also appear to me that the killer shot all six bullets from a revolver. Then Mr. Hall, who had an empty gun, struck the victim a couple of times about the face.
2: Blancett spins this whole story, all based on this one woman's testimony that Ulysses was in Tony's car. This is how Blancett closed Calvin's trial. Years later, Blancett would present the same evidence, trying to get Ulysses put away. But this time, the judge wasn't buying it. He took one look at it and threw it out. So, the evidence that was good enough to send Calvin to prison for 30 years wasn't enough to convict the guy who supposedly pulled the trigger. We have continued to reach out to Ulysses. We sent letters, called, so we could tell his side of the story. But from what we gathered, he's still fearful that the San Joaquin County District Attorney's Office could prosecute him for the murder of Tony Virgilio.
3: Our justice system is supposed to be how we get to the truth. But sometimes the truth is just the more convincing story. That's what happened with Ulysses and Calvin. The stories we tell about people are important. They tell us how to feel about someone. And it was clear that after hearing and reading so many things about Ulysses, that we believed a certain story about him, that he was larger than life, intimidating, dangerous. But what we found instead was a frail, soft-spoken old man who just wanted to be left alone. The jury believed a certain story about Calvin, that he had conspired with his friend Ulysses to kill his business partner. And I believed a certain story about my dad. But at the end of the day, these stories aren't proof of anything. I've learned a lot about who my dad was, but I also got to know someone else, his best friend, the person who went to prison for Tony's murder, Calvin Leslie Jones. Calvin appealed his conviction all the way to the state Supreme Court, but all his efforts were in vain. And because he's maintained his innocence and wouldn't admit to the crime, he was denied parole. Then, in 2013, after 30 years, he was finally released. But the impact on his life and on his family cannot be measured. What is certain is that when Calvin went to jail, his family lost just about everything. Brian, the middle son, is in his 50s now. He still remembers what it was like being a kid when his dad went away to prison, and the difficult decisions his mom had to make.
5: So we had to start all over again because she just couldn't afford it. So uh, she got over with the boys and uh, took the family dog, drove down the street,
3: and dropped him off. After Calvin went away, the family lost their home in Murata, an affluent suburb of Stockton.
5: So she drove down the street, threw the dog out the back of the station wagon, and she takes off, and the dog is chasing the station wagon because she can't take it. And she don't like the dog anyway, so uh, we're crying. You know, me and my brother, my youngest brother, we're all crying because we all vividly remember our dog running behind this station wagon. And we're crying, and yeah, she's telling us to shut up, be quiet, don't eat that damn crazy dog, this, that, and the other. And one day we told that story, and my mom started crying. And she just said, I'm so sorry. I didn't know what else to do. It was either y'all or the dog.
3: When I hear Brian's story, my heart breaks. What happened to him and his brothers, what his mom felt forced to do, it makes me wonder how many sacrifices my mother would have made to raise me and my siblings, and how different things could have been if my dad had gone away. For one, I wouldn't be here. I was born two years after the trial. But even if I was, I don't think I would have made it to law school or as a television writer. We certainly wouldn't be doing this podcast. I'd like to say that the sacrifices made all those years ago are just painful memories. That today, Calvin and his family have moved on. But that's not true. To this day, Calvin struggles with the aftermath of his conviction.
4: They informed me that I couldn't go into the cannabis business because I was an ex-felon. And that's illegal.
3: This might seem small in comparison to everything that Calvin has been through, but this bothers him. He sees this as yet another injustice on his family. Talking to Calvin, it's clear he won't ever let this go until his conviction is overturned and everyone believes his innocence. But the reality is that without new evidence, it's virtually impossible to overturn a conviction.
4: Well, my whole thing right now is that I want people to understand the process of the judicial system and the police department here in this county that how it really works. The judicial system just doesn't work for us minorities. I don't care what city you're in. Some cities that work better, but 50 years ago in this town here, you just couldn't get a fair trial.
3: Calvin doesn't think he got a fair trial. And knowing what I know now, neither do I. I can't tell you who killed Tony Virgilio. But what I do know is that the case against Calvin and my dad was negligent, built on shoddy evidence, rumors, and grudges. I need to be clear. When I started trying to find out who killed Tony Virgilio, I did it for selfish reasons. I suspected my dad was involved and I harbored resentment towards him all my life I hated him for always being angry, for being cruel to me and my family. There are still so many things I want to know. Did my dad know about the hit? Did Calvin really spill his guts to Clyde? Did Ulysses Hall shoot Tony? But all the answers are locked up in old men who will probably carry these secrets to their graves. I guess, in a way, It's the same frustration I had with my own father, a person who died without sharing the truths I desperately wanted to know. There's no consolation for that. I know this is an unsatisfying ending for a story. It's an unsatisfying ending for me, too.
1: Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I started this journey to find out if my dad was a killer. But what I really wanted to know was, was he a good guy? Because as much as I try, I can't stop being my father's son. And there are parts of him that live in me. It's something Calvin mentioned about me.
4: First of all, that's his father. And he's exactly like him. And they their manner and their drive to get something done. Like they're they just alike to me. But Alex don't understand that yet. Yeah.
3: My dad's story is a part of mine. I know that I can never go back and recreate the relationship I wish I had with him. The Rosalie Estrada I knew was only a fragment of the complex person he actually was. I grew up with a brutal and broken man whose good years were long behind him. But I see now that he was more than the half-hearted eulogy I gave 10 years ago. What I knew then and now is that I was the wrong person to speak at his funeral. It should have been Calvin. Calvin couldn't be there. He was still locked up and unsure whether he'd ever get out. My dad never saw his best friend free. But today, more than 50 years since they met, Calvin knows exactly what he would have said about Rosalía Estrada.
4: Rosie Estrada was like a brother to me. We became brothers But at the same time, he was also a visionary. Also, he was a person who wanted to achieve something in life and have some kind of a legacy that he could leave behind, not for just his family, but for other people. I miss him a lot. I miss him because I know that So much more could have been accomplished if this incident and these things wouldn't have came about in his life. Rosie, you fought a good fight. Thanks for being a great friend. Our plight is not over. We still, even at our age, We still have a lot to do. I know that you will always be remembered because even today, people are trying to still figure out who you are, what you were, and they haven't forgot about it because you left something there for them to remember you about. Good, bad, whatever. They have a reason to want to know and understand who their father was. Even your own kids asking, who was my father?
3: Calvin's right. Here I am, a 37-year-old man, years after my father died. And I'm still asking who he was. I've spent nights poring over documents, sat for hours in uncomfortable interviews, asking people who knew him all kinds of personal and inappropriate questions, just to get a glimpse, an understanding of who he truly was. Confronting my father's past, it forced me to face all the lessons he taught me, to not trust others, to not be vulnerable to not show weakness. For my whole life, I've been keeping these lessons with me like armor, but to put my dad to rest, I had to let my guard down. I had to go back to Stockton, go back home, sit with what Calvin told me. Because Calvin Jones didn't just have final words for my dad, he also had a message for me.
4: Alex, I want you to know that you are just like your father. Learn to love yourself.
3: The Estate was produced by Sonoro in partnership with Tenderfoot TV. Hosted by me, Alex Estrada and Angelina Mosier-Salazar. Reported by Angelina Mosier-Salazar. Investigated by Angelina Mosier-Salazar, Alex Estrada and Evelyn Uribe. Written by Angelina Mosier-Salazar and Alex Estrada. With help from Evelyn Uribe and Carlos Arenado. Edited by Ross Terrell and Jasmine Romero. Fact check by Sarah Mota and Evelyn Uribe. Mix and sound design by Manuel Parra and Daniel Padilla. Engineering by Josh Hahn, Sam Baer, and Brett Tubin at the Relic Room in New York City. Original music by Ernesto Aguirre. Our theme song is by Marcus Bagala. Executive produced by Alex Estrada. From Sonoro, executive producers are Joshua Weinstein and Camila Victoriano. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Special thanks to Lisa Pollack. Sarah Boanan, Christian Yatar, Rodrigo Crespo, Carmen Graterol, and Adriana Broger.